Welcome, 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 welcome to the Barnabas Speaks podcast. I am your host, Cloyd Brown, and I'd like to welcome you to Barnabas Speaks. Uh, this is your first time listening. This is a podcast about encouragement, a podcast about empowerment, and a podcast about faith. And uh, this is the first time I'm doing, not first time, but it's the first time in a while that I am doing the video. Uh, so I uh, hope that this uh, is to go smoothly and we'll see uh, that uh, I'll definitely be posting this on my YouTube channel and on Facebook. Um, we have been talking about faith, uh, really not faith, but what do you do after you say I do to God? Uh, and then we have been talking about the trauma of sin. And I want to take an intermission. I want to take a break. Because uh, we just started the, the, the trauma of sin last week. And I do want to continue this because I think it's important. And we will continue to talk about it next week. But I would be remiss if I did not uh, take the moment, take, the, take a time, take a second to really address uh, something that's heavy on my heart heavy uh, on the nation's heart. I would hope that it's the nation and not just one community, but uh, it's been a busy Memorial Day weekend, if you will. Uh, it's a busy month of May. It's been busy. Uh, uh, I wish that I could say that uh, I have excitement about talking about this, but I had to get this out. I had to talk about everything that's going on uh, that's been going on uh, the past few uh, days uh, over the weekend from February to now uh, as it pertains to <sighs> interactions in the black community. Uh, I, uh, if you follow me on my YouTube channel, I just recently spoke about how oftentimes when it came to these kind of things, I would uh, stray away from them. I would not say anything when it comes to politics, when it comes to social justice, not out loud, at least, uh, at least not publicly, because I, I would uh, speak amongst my my closest network of people and friends. We'd have discussions about it, but uh, oftentimes I would not uh, talk about it out loud. Uh, and uh, if I'm being honest, if I'm being Trans, as transparent as I want to be in this, uh, it it was because of my, I have a diverse and mixed group of friends, uh, white, black, uh, Hispanic, Asian, and I often wondered and concerned myself with how it would truly uh, affect them and not really thinking about how it impacted me to sit on this, uh, to how it impacted me to really, truly sit on this thought that uh, I'm tired of seeing uh, people like me uh, murdered. And and this the reaction and the response. You follow me on Facebook, I put earlier today that uh, silence speaks volumes. I said that not only does silence speak volumes, but silence can also be deafening. And what I meant by that, so that there's no confusion, there's no thoughts of what, of what I meant by that. Uh, 
what I meant by that is exactly what I, what I said is that oftentimes in those moments, people that you hope would speak up, people that you need to speak up, they don't speak up. They really don't. And it becomes a thing where you need them to speak up and they won't. You need them to say something and they won't. I'm just doing some housekeeping. Uh, you can see it on video, but you cannot see it. Uh, uh, you cannot see, clearly can't see it on the podcast, but I had to do some housekeeping as far as lighting is concerned. And they didn't speak up. People that don't look like me, people that don't know a lot of the people that this harm is coming to. And it does not bother me. It did not bother me for the people that don't speak up about anything, really. They're generally private about their, their thoughts. That didn't bother me that they weren't speaking up because it, would, it was part of the nature. But the, for the people that had become so loud uh, about what they disliked when it came to politics or what they liked when it came to politics or when it was an open and shut case that the person truly did threaten the life of the cop. Then they were so publicly out loud. <laughs> and I, it hurt, if I'm being honest. I, I, as I begin to think about everything that's going on, I begin to travel my life. I can only speak about my life. Uh, uh, we will start with Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, I am from Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, I was born in Bronx, the Bronx, South Bronx Hospital in New York. After that, we moved to Newburgh, New York. And when I was 10, my dad, my mom, my sisters and brother and I, we moved to a small town called Brunswick, Georgia. It's in Southeast Georgia. Um I, I, it's not too many places where I could not tell you how to get there to get to my hometown of Brunswick, Georgia. And I've sat on this for a while. I have not really spoke on it as, as freely and as openly as I wanted to. But, but here we are. I am from Brunswick, Georgia. I went to middle school. I, did, I went to fourth grade. I finished fourth grade uh, because I started in New York and then we moved to Georgia. I started fourth grade. I finished fourth gra- grade at uh, Altama Elementary School. I did fifth grade, uh, f- fifth grade at Glendale Elementary School. I went to Risley Middle School for sixth through eighth grade, and I graduated from Glen Academy High School uh, in 2001. I grew up uh, in a, a part of Brunswick, Georgia that is called Brookman, Georgia. I am... <laughs> From Brookman, Georgia, I uh, it's country. I grew up rural country town. Um, in my area of Brookman, I was one of very few black people that lived out there. If you leave my neighborhood, uh, which is Emanuel Church Road, you take a left and you drive about a mile and a half to two miles, uh, you'll come to a, a section on the left. You could go to uh, a park called Satilla Marsh, and uh, the right, 
I mean, Satilla Shores, Satilla Marshall Elementary School, Satilla Shores, and then to the right is Fancy Bluff, my god brother, my best friend, Laurent Bennett, lived there, and I spent a lot of my my high school time over at his house. Uh, we were both on the track team, went to church together and things of that nature. Across the way is uh, Satilla Shores, uh, where Ahmad was shot and murdered. Uh, um, and he was shot there. I know that neighborhood. I've been through that neighborhood. I rode my bike through that neighborhood. Uh, we've played basketball in that neighborhood. We've done a lot in that neighborhood. Uh, even after I graduated, me, Bud, Laurent, uh, his little brother, Byron, my little brother, Matthew, we would uh, ride our bikes over there through that neighborhood. Just being, doing what young kids do. So I know that neighborhood very well. And I was telling my wife that when I heard the scene, which when you heard, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer, so I'm very, I, I like, I picture a lot of things. And so when I pictured this this neighborhood, if you haven't been there, you don't understand that these, these, these big trees in certain parts where it covers the road, they, they come across the road. And I pictured this truck in the middle of the road with this, with one person inside, one in the back of the, the bed of the truck, with one with a shotgun and one with a revolver. And the scene that I picture, because I can put myself there. See, if you've never been in that neighborhood, you can't put yourself there. But I've been in the neighborhood. I've, I've, I've rode my bike on these, this street. I've seen the houses. My, 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 my school bus, my, 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 my bus route went through that area. So I know it. So I can picture it. I can put myself on there. And the first picture that happened when I see this truck and now to find out there's another car that was chasing him as well. I see the scene from one of my one of the movies that I enjoy. And if you've been if you have been a, a follower of the podcast, you know that I use movies a lot, movies and music a lot uh, in my 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 descriptions. And so I've been on that road and I pictured a time to kill. And I pictured this young little girl running from these men on a pickup truck, running for her life. And while Ahmad was not this little girl, in some sense of the world, he was this little girl. Because we, what we remove, what we do, what we put into action is we tell this person just let's imagine much like a time to kill let's just imagine that Ahmad is not black he's not white he's not anything he's just a person he's a human being and before him he has a, a pickup truck with a man one man with a shotgun and one with a gun and they're telling him hey this, we stop we want to talk to you now, let's just forget all those other things that a person with a shotgun and a revolver is telling you 
Stop, we want to talk to you. You don't know them. You don't know to trust him. But this person is just supposed to stop and talk to them. That is not even... It's not normal. But now they're on the truck trying to pursue him. Now they're blocking the road. And I, yeah, there's more to the story. Da, 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 da. But forget the, forget this picture. Just this, put yourself here. What do you do? And then they said, well, if he was so afraid of fear for his life, why would he attack the person with the shotgun? There becomes a point in every person's life where it's flight or fight. Now, running is not really an option. This person has a shotgun. If you really, if, if this is, you're, you're now trying to survive. Yes, the result ended that he did not survive, but you're trying to survive. Put yourself there. A person just comes up to you. And so they want to talk to you. This person is now committing a citizen's arrest. Now we find out from the camera that he didn't take anything. We find out from the owner that nothing was missing. The crazy thing about it is I've been on construction sites. I've, I've, we've stopped. I'm talking about from the time I was in college to the time to now. I have stopped and looked in, looked in, Houses under construction. <sighs> I've been a mod. Then I thought about that. I thought about that. That put me back in that situation. And because I said that this really caused me to just really think about some things. It really did. It, it took me back to Glen Academy High School. And I was telling my one of my close friends this. I I can't remember if it was eleventh or twelfth grade. And if you were at Glen Academy with me, and I hope that some of my my friends that have that are part of that went to Glen Academy will take a moment to watch this and they'll be able to respond. I can't remember if it was eleventh or twelfth grade. It was an incident. It was right when they changed what unexcused absences mean. Um at this juncture, they changed it to where if you had more than 10 unexcused absences, you could not pass the class. No matter what your grade, no matter how well you did in the class, if you had more than 10 unexcused absences, you could not pass the class. So that means that if you had 11 unexcused absences, you have now failed the class. So how it worked at this time is that uh, in school suspension, you were marked as present for the class and you still got all your work. So you, get, you, you had both things. You were able to do your work and you weren't present. But if you were suspended, you were more absent because you weren't at school. So during this time, this what we call it was a race fight. I can't remember what it was about, what it was for, but it was white against black. Let's say it was about six, seven white people, six, seven black people, and it was a fight. And I'll never forget it. During this time, all of the white individuals received 10 days in school suspension. 
and all of the black individuals receive 10 days home suspension. So that means that these black individuals are put at, at a black students, white students, they are put at a disadvantage because if they have one unexcused absence for whatever reason, they have now failed that class, regardless of what. And the other side of this 10 days of missed work while the, the white students are still receiving their work. Nothing is said. Now, there was some turmoil. I remember who did it, and it's not my story to tell, but I, I, very, I remember very clearly who, who was the warrior for this. But it was, just, it was just passed off as something normal. I've been, I've had Amy Cooper's. My family has had Amy Cooper's. This this incident that, in, at Central Park, where we have to concern ourselves with being in our place. What really happened, whether you want to believe it or not, Amy Cooper felt. That this man was out, was out, was out at place. He was not in his place. This man is watching. He's a bird watcher. He, he, he is a bird watcher, just doing what he normally does. He is literally just going there. To enjoy watching the birds. This woman doesn't have her dog on a leash. And he suggests to her, could you please put your dog on a leash? By this suggestion, she is so offended, so put off. that she begins to approach him and she becomes the aggressor. He says, please don't come any further. She steps back, but comes back. I've watched the video. And then she threatens not just to call the police, which you normally, if, if someone was to break into your house, you tell a criminal that you're about to call the police, but that's not what happened. She said, she didn't just say, I'm going to call the police. She says, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them an African-American man is threatening me. And the thing that kills me about the apology she gave is that she made it seem like she didn't realize the impact of her actions. But by the words that she said, it, it, it lets me know that she truly understood the impact of her actions. In fact, she understood it so much that she was counting on the word that she used to scare him to stop doing and to get back in his place. So, Amy Cooper, it's not up to me to accept your apology. It is up to this man that you have hurt, this, this man that you decided 
to do this to Mr. Christian Cooper. But your apology doesn't seem genuine to me. But it's not, I'm not the judge of that, but I'm not sure how sorry you are. No, I'm just being honest. I was in the military for nine years and nine months. Now, when I went through basic training, there was, it was there's no room for racism be, uh, in basic training because what the challenge is that most people say when you go in the military that there is no that, that, that there's no room for racism in the military. And while I would believe that, but it still is. But literally, when you're in basic training, there's little time for racism. Literally, like your your minute by minute, hour by hour, your day by day is planned. There literally is no time because they are bringing you into the fold and so they have to teach you and indoctrinate you into the ways of the military. But then you go into tech school. And I told you, I'm just going to walk you through my experience as a, as a black man. And I'm not even touching everything that happened to me before I even got in the military. So, let's, but let's go. I joined the Air Force 2006. I graduate basic training and I leave and go to Shepherd Air Force Base where my tech school is. Uh, and I, so I go to learn my job. And so there, I will never forget, I was in my class and I was told by this, this teacher, instructor, he was a civilian, and we were talking about uh, our marksmanship. And one of the places where I got the best score was uh, I was doing the prone position, shooting from the prone position in mop, mop gear. And if you're not in the military, you understand what that is. But you're laying down. Prone position means you're laying down. And when you do that, you have to, to have to move. You have to turn the turn the gun a little bit, and it's almost it's sideways uh, to be able to look through the as you look through the uh, the sight. And it wasn't my. It, it was it's one of my better ones. And he said, "Well, that's." And he makes it joke with the emphasis on that's because you got to shoot the gun sideways like this not knowing that I, I'm a I'm a country boy grew up around BB guns shotguns and so I've been around guns and so I, I didn't grow up the way that he's portraying but that's that's one this is base training I'm in tech school and then so uh, I I become a rope and for those that don't know uh uh what a rope is, a rope basically is, is is a leadership position within the training. So although I'm still a training uh, airman, I'm still being trained, I have a leadership position amongst that. And so there's levels, those green, yellow, red. And the only way to make red is you have to be there a long time. So I was never even going to make yellow because I wasn't going to be there long enough to to even do that. And so, I'm, so I, I make green rope and the our... Uh, formation commander was a yellow rope, and we're returning from class. So in tech school, every you like when you leave class, you come in form, you go in formation, you leave in formation. So we're leaving formation, and the the yellow rope uh, uh, of our formation, uh, he is he's black, and so we're marching home, 
and this white MTL, MTL means military training leader, he stops our formation. He comes up to the yellow rope and says, a black yellow rope. That's all. And he said, I squandered his name. Uh, that's all they, that's all you have to offer. That's all they have to offer. I'll never forget it. Uh, because our, our MTL leader within our squadron came to us and, uh, he apologized and they had to go, he had to go have a conversation, but this is part of my introduction unto the military. A black yellow rope, that's all they have to offer. And he is he is a military training leader. He's supposed to be setting the example. So I go to tech school, I finish, I graduate, and I go to my first duty station. McGuire Air Force Base. It's in South New Jersey, right above Philadelphia, basically. And I had some good times there, but I had some other times. <laughs> and there was a moment where I was doing really well. Uh, I was doing really well. And I had got what they said, uh, what they called B CM and BTZ, which CM and below the zone. I was on the dorm council. Uh, in our and for the for our squadron, I was the um, the base wide person of contact for airmen against drunk driving. I was an honor guard. I I, I clearly I, I made rank early uh, by becoming senior and below the zone, which means I, I received my rank six months early. Uh, I received this award. Uh, you can't see it, but it, uh, if you're on the podcast, but it says 605th AMXS, 2008 Airman of the Year, Senior Airman Cloyd S. Brown. And uh, I received it, and I received it. I also won at the uh, the group level. I didn't win at the wing level, but I won at the group level. I deployed. Uh, I won Airman of the Month out there. And so I had I I had a good, this is, I was always said 2008, 2009, and New Jersey was a very good year for me uh, as an airman. But I remember it like it's yesterday. Every time that I did something, I succeeded. There was this one guy. He would say, Cloyd, you're only winning these things because you're black. That's what he would say. You're only winning these things because you're black. And I've worked in aircraft maintenance. So there's a ter certain toughness, a certain crudeness to working in this uh it's just it's just a reality of it I, I i can't the best thing it's it's almost like working at a construction site if, if you've ever done that but it's it really it's, it's it's hard to explain unless you've worked in it it's just really hard to explain unless you've been in the military and did it it's hard to explain the environment but it's a different kind of environment. And so it's certain things that you let slide. It's certain things that certain conversations that you have. It is not. It's not like working in an office. It's just it's, it's hard to. I can only say that like it's, it's maintenance. I can't even fathom all the things, but you learned there's a there's a there's a, a certain toughening of your skin that one that takes place as a black person. As a minority. 
that you have to let certain things slide if you want to survive and you want to succeed. And maintenance is no different because in certain levels, it is a good old boys club. It doesn't mean, but it it doesn't, I was still able to succeed in it, but it, it took certain things. And so when he said it, it was like, okay, Sometimes we make certain kind of jokes. And so and I'm just being honest. This is, um, this is 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009. And so we, he made the joke. And that was once. And so one time is a joke. He, 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 okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But then every time. And then he would express it to other people. Well, Claude only gets that because he's black. And I sat on it and I ate it. I ate it because at the time there were people that were leaders in my shop that heard it, didn't say anything, didn't do anything. I just had to, I had to eat it. Man, if I'm going to make it in maintenance, I have to, I have to take this. I've, I've had people that were called my brothers and sisters in arms when I find out later on that behind closed door, they weren't calling me the N-word, but they felt free to use it. But then I don't want to sell it like there weren't any allies. I'll never forget my friend Brian Rooney. They're the ones who came back and told me. And they didn't have to tell me. I, I remember who said it. I remember the context of what it said. And I even remember what they said. Other people said it. Like, like, thank God I, I, I haven't heard that since I was back home. And Brian Rooney. One of my first friends uh, at McGuire. Uh, he is like, don't you ever say that. No, don't, don't, I don't ever want to hear you say that. He's a white guy. He's just different, though, man. Brian Rooney is different. He, I love that guy. There's other people that were very good and loyal to me, good friends. Uh, I'm not going through a whole list of things. I don't want people to feel out. I left them out. No, I'm thankful for Brian Rooney. I'm thankful for David Corzo for Christopher Fresh Hour. I'm thankful for Lance Browning. I'm thankful for those people, uh, Curtis Moses. I'm even thankful for Jamie Sherwood. Now, me and Jamie do not always see each other, see eye to eye and agree on most, on a lot of things. We don't agree, but I will say that Jamie is fair. Uh, he believes what he believes and he stands on it. And there's other people, and I'm sure I'm missing people, and that's why I didn't want to name those people, but I'm talking about some of the people I grew up with, Nathaniel Shannon. And people are going to feel some kind of way because I didn't mention the name, but it is what it is. Appreciate you too, Glenn Reddit, my, my sponsor when I first got there. Big Red, uh, Michael Murphy. Uh, I appreciate y'all. My allies, Ryan Castillo. Scott Seal. I said I want to say this. It was ironic that the person that said what they said about me to, to me about not winning the award because if we're, we're just talking on merit. Just talking on merit. 
and I can't say it, Work-wise, us doing our job, we were, they, they, they were not, me and this person were, it wasn't that they weren't as good as a mechanic, but they were always gone. So I, I, when I mean gone, there was always a reason why they were missing work. I literally did my job. But then on top of doing my job, I did other things outside of that. So the fact is that comparably, we were on, let's just say we were on the same level work-wise. The extra stuff I did that's it. Like, I mean, they, 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 this, this holistic airman, and I don't mean that you you shouldn't be doing your job, but because you should do your job, but you shouldn't like you should do extra things at the, the the expense of doing your job. But I did both. Now there was a person that, like, literally, there was a person that maybe that was that was there and maybe did their job better than me. I would say it was Scott Seal. He was a hard worker. Now, he didn't always get along with everybody, but it, yeah. And I appreciate you, Scott Seal. You were, you were 100 from the beginning. Uh, so, we leave here. We leave there. <laughs> what do you do? Like, I mean... Like most people don't even know my story because it's not something I talk about because it's really I'm supposed to have tough skin. I'm supposed to be there and do this, both within my community and outside of my community. What what do you what do you say when you have thoughts, but everyone around you's thoughts are when you have thoughts about what happened to George Floyd and what happened to Ahmaud Arbery, what happened to Breonna Taylor, what happened to uh, Walter. Um, Walter Scott, what happened uh, to all these people? This is not the first time we said, I can't breathe. This is not the first time we said this. We, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the first time. It's not the first time that we, we, we've, we've, we had to wear these shirts, I can't breathe, i.e. Eric Gardner, 2014. It's not the first time. It's not the first time we've had these hashtags. But I've had these thoughts. I've had these feelings. I've, I've, I've had this, this volcano. That's the best way to, 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 to describe this volcano of anger. A, a volcano of emotion. A volcano of, of being misunderstood. A volcano of trying to be the good Christian man. And being a balance in the bridge. Being afraid of losing my witness, not speaking out because I had black friends, I had white friends, I had I am, I am a part of a melting pot of people, diverse friends. And not being able to say anything. Because I feel trapped in, and caught in the middle and not saying anything. What is it like to be black in America? What is it like to be black in the Air Force and military? It's having to be perfect. Not perfect in the sense that you don't make any mistakes. Like, when something like this happens, 
there is such denial that we'll search for anything that makes helps us to believe that it's okay that this this happened to this person. We stop at the human factor. We 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 stop. We 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 we. we I mean, we move past the human factor. This that this human being is no longer with us. Imagine. Imagine. Imagine being a person that is well-trained, well-trained, that has years and years of training, has went to the police academy. Imagine. Imagine that a person that's had trained in in, in de-escalation tactics, that's had training in stressful situations, that's training in firearms, had training in other ways to de-escalate things outside of deadly force. Imagine that. And then imagine on the other side, a person that has not had any of these trainings, has not learned how to de-escalate situations, has not learned conflict management, has not been necessarily around firearms their whole life, has not been, not, not been trained to be put in these situations. And now imagine putting that, both people in that situation where they're hit face-to-face. And the person that's been trained has the opportunity to fear for their life. They have the, 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 the freedom and the flexibility to fear for their life and to defend their life by any means necessary. But this other person who has not had the training, has not had the conflict management training, has not had to de- been trained in de-escalation tactics, has not had firearms training, has not been through years of the, years in the academy and all, and all the job training, they're supposed to act perfect in that situation. They should not be nervous. They should be able to answer questions clearly. Because if you didn't do anything, you, you, don't, you have no reason to be nervous. Imagine. Imagine being told that because you grew up in a, a very Christian household and you didn't really start listening to rap music to like 11th or 12th grade and your parents were never going to buy you Air Jordans, that you were told by a Caucasian that you were less black because, or they were more black than you because they listened to more rap music and they, they had more Jordans than you because that is what defines blackness. They didn't say that's what defines blackness, but that's what they alluded to when they said that I'm more black than you because of this. Imagine you having the first black president. Imagine this and President Barack Obama and a person discrediting his blackness because he did not grow up grow up in the hood and he didn't have quote unquote struggle so he's not really black to then to ins- that is what you insinuate when you think of black people so it lets me know that in order to be in in that person's eyes in order to be black you have to have a struggle Imagine in being in your dream job, working in detachment instruct, instructing, and you hear a person continuously use the N-word. But you gotta be tough, you gotta be strong. Imagine being in the military and you're being told that chain of command matters and that you have to follow the chain of command. And that there is a regulation that instructs the chain of command, but your friend who happens to be African-American is dealing with someone that falls under the chain of command that ranks lower than them. But she, being of Caucasian descent, 
disrespects him. Disrespects his rank. And when he does what he's supposed to do and work his chain of command and goes to the chain of command above him and instructs them and tells them what's going on. There's no correction, but what is is said is it excuses her behavior. We need people like her. Imagine that how how that view how that views I, I, I don't know how you perceive that that this person can do whatever they want even if it means disrupting the chain of command disrupting the the the, the, the level of respect that that person has we need people like her <laughs> imagine driving. A 1990 Blue Mazda Protégé. In 2001. So this car is 11 years old. No one ever saw a 1990 Mazda Protégé and say drug dealer car. But imagine driving. You're on your way back to college. From your hometown. And you're going through Jefferson Davis County. And the police officer pulls you over. You know you weren't speeding because you did the the uh, you put it on cruise control and you knew not to speed. Because you're driving through small towns. And they pull you over, and they are convinced that you have drugs. To the point to where they call the drug dog. Imagine the fear. That families have, that wives have. Imagine being a kid and your mom telling you not to run through the store, not because it's the wrong thing to do, because this is a place of business, but because I don't want anyone to think that you're stealing anything. Imagine moving from New York to Georgia, and the first thing your dad says is, don't tell anybody you're from up north because people, they still haven't got over the, the it. They'll just call you a Yankee. And not really believing it until years later when people still call the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. Imagine. Imagine all this. Imagine going to your room, go to bed that night, and you wake up and you hear somebody in your house, and the cops are shooting, and they kill your your girlfriend, your wife, and your child, and then you find out that they had the wrong house. And the suspect they were looking for was already arrested in police custody. Imagine. Imagine. Just just imagine. I'm asking you to imagine. Imagine having friends and family and, and close people just minding their business, doing the right thing. I watched the video of, of George Floyd. Not the video of him dying. I, I can't. I, I can't. I refuse. 
But I did watch the video of when they pulled him out the, the car. When they pulled him out the car, they put the cuffs on him. So he couldn't be resisting there. Then I saw a video of like a traffic cam or ATM cam where he's just sitting on the floor cuffed up. So he couldn't be resisting there. They pick him up and they start walking. They have him cuffed with his hands behind his back. And in this scene, they have him with his hands behind their back. And this officer for five minutes puts his knee on this man's neck. The man begs and pleads. He's begging and pleading, saying, I can't breathe. I hurt. Everything hurts. I can't, I can't watch this, but imagine. And imagine you not blinking. Imagine they're telling people that they can trust the police. But this man, this monster, unfazed by this man's pleads for his life. We're not talking about the right to vote. We're not talking about a fair housing. We're not talking about fair job placement. We're not talking about the unemployment rate. We're not talking about voting Republican or Democrat. We're talking about life. Where are you? Why are you so quiet? Why haven't you said anything? Those that have been vocal about everything else, you let me know when you didn't like President Obama. You let me know when you didn't like President Bush. You let me know how you feel about the Democrats. You let me know when you feel about people rioting. And you let me know when you felt like protesting wasn't. You let me know about Colin Kaepernick and how you felt about that. You let me know how you felt about Donald Trump. It was all over social media. But when situations like this happen, you are silent and it hurts me to my core. hurts me. It tears me up. You want to know what a veteran, how a veteran feels, it, it tears me up. How you could be so opinionated about whether you get to leave your house during COVID-19, but are silent that this person is outside of their house and they are no longer here over a bounced check. Over, a per, over going inside a, a construction site house. If he, he committed a wrong, arrest him. You can't even say what he did wrong on a 911 call. Now he is gone. I need to get this in your head. Brianna Taylor is gone and she literally did nothing wrong but fall asleep in her house. She was born in 1993. June 5th, 1993. Ahmaud Arbery was born May 8th, 1994. Understand that life was snatched from these people. It was snatched from these people. It was, it was, it was taken from them. And they're not here. They're not here. Where are you? 
You've been silent. And I know what's going to be said. I, I want to hear all the facts. Let all the facts come out. Let, let's see what else is out there. But it's never that when you have an opinion about something else. And it's not about race. That's what you'll say. It's hard. If you know me, you know that I don't say. I don't say anything without thought. I don't stand on something without thinking about something and praying about it. A few weeks ago, I asked a question, what would Jesus do? Evangelicals, what would Jesus do? And you are going to tell me that he would pray and he would forgive. I want to free some people because the, the knee-jerk reaction of the Christian church is going to be able to tell you to forgive. Just forgive. And the knee-jerk reaction is to get on TV and say, I forgive you. I've already forgiven you. And I'm not sure that's possible. Not in the span of a few days. It's possible, but it's, I'm not sure if it is because you most people haven't even gone through the stages of grief. And I want to use, I'm a faith guy, so I'm always going to use scripture and I'm going to use the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, this is how we learn to forgive. It says, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So it has several levels. It means basically, if I don't forgive, then you have no, you, you don't have to forgive me. And that's one level. But also forgive me how I forgive others. So if I forgive them half-heartedly, then you have permission to forgive me half-heartedly. But there's a third level that we do not understand. When God forgives, when Jesus forgives, he lets it completely go. It's not a service forgiveness. It, 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 it is forgive and forget. You no longer are dealing with it. He literally lets it go. He casts it into the sea of forgetfulness. For his own sake, he will not remember. If we're going to forgive how Jesus forgives, we have to go through the true process. And it's okay to go through the process. It's okay that if, if, if you have not got to the place of forgiveness, because if you, for, if you say you forgive, but you have not really dealt with it, it's not true forgiveness, then you're, you're not only not forgiving, you're also lying. So one, let the family go through the process. Why is that always the first question that's asked when it comes to black and brown people is that they forgive? We don't, I know people that still haven't forgiven the terrorist in 9-11. But as soon as I'm talking about the body has not even been put in the grave. And what would you say to the family? Do you forgive them? 
You have to give people time. If, we, if, we, if we're talking practicality, if we're talking about what's real, if we're talking about the seriousness of forgiveness, if we're talking about what is real in God's eyes, it takes time. And there's going to be some things that God, that, that, that through, through faith and through prayer, that God has to speed up. But the reality of it is, stop beating up people if they don't, they don't have it in that moment. And while you're on camera, while you're sticking into their head, and they're still dealing with, with, with the, the, reper, the repercussions of the actions. Or the fact that they haven't even gone through a cycle yet where they have to deal about, think about the, the holidays where they don't have this person. Don't force people into a fake forgiveness. Because it makes you feel better. If we're going to be Christian, let's be Christian. And to be Christian is to be authentic. And everyone's not going to agree with me in this. I understand that. And we can have a discussion. We can have a theological discussion on this. We can have a rap session. But it's not always going to be immediate. Because just like God has to work on us through some of our sin, just like God has to work on us for some of the strongholds we have, he has to have to work with us on forgiveness. And that's okay. If you say okay to the person that can't stop drinking right away, because even though they're alcoholic, and you say, okay, we understand it's a process, you have to understand forgiveness is a process and stop expecting it immediately. This is not what I'm supposed to speak on. I put on Facebook, I have a lot to say, and I still have a lot to say. But I I don't want to make this podcast any longer. Your silence hurts. To those that are so loud and vocal about everything else, your silence hurts. And I want to caveat, just because I did not name you does not mean that I don't feel like you're an ally. I was naming people from my time in uh, McGuire. Uh, but there have other people that have been allies and that I love very dearly that are not African-American or minority. There's some people that I've watched, witness grow that I truly call brother and I call sister. And I, I know for a fact that if I needed them, they would be right there by my side. This, there's so much. There's more I want to say, but what I'm asking you is just to imagine. Imagine it's you. Imagine it's your son, your daughter. Imagine. We don't know what to do. Internally, I'm screaming. And I'm praying too, but internally I'm screaming. I'm screaming because I've been in situations I've been in situations where that could have been me. Let's be clear. Whether 
not over, I've I've had a check bounce before. That could have been me. I've looked. I've gone through a house that was under construction before. That could have been me. I've lived somewhere where there was a raid close to there. So that could have been me. I've told someone that they should put their dog on a leash. That could have been me. And I tell you all of this, I tell this story that to those that call me friend, those that call me brother, that may not look like me, don't have the same political affiliation as me, but they, they say that they love me. I want you to see. If you love me, you would think, man, what would that have been if that would have been Cloyd? If you have a a a, a person that you love that just happens to be African American, and they could have been in that situation. And I know what's going to be said. Well, what about Black on black crime. Black on there's no such thing as black on black crime. Crime is a crime is opportunity, location. If you do the numbers, you'll see that more black people commit crime against black people, more white people commit crime against white people, more it's it's a crime of convenience. They're crimes of convenience. That's what it is. It's, it's convenience. But what you don't realize is that we are upset about that. What you don't realize in 2013 in Charleston, South Carolina, where people are talking about why we're we not marching and riling up for black on black crime. That summer, councilman, he wasn't a councilman then, but Michael Brown of North Charleston, District 1. Even then, he was forming rallies to, to, to put the guns down to stop the violence. But you did, that didn't make the news. So you didn't know about it. So you think that we're silent when these things happen. We are in our communities trying to improve them. But most people live in their siloids. And they live in their, their shelters that they don't even know these things are going on, that people are upset, they are riled up, they are upset, they are mad. They are dealing with the grief and trying to change their communities. So stop saying that we're not saying anything when these things happen because we are. Stop saying that we're not upset and we're not, we're not, we're not loud when these things happen because we are. But when a black person kills a black person, the news doesn't come out there to find out what's going on. It's because it's just seen as just another day. And just because it's just another day for, for everyone else does not mean it's not just another day for the people involved. That there are not people in the community trying to save these kids. Save their family. Just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it's not happening.
So stop it. Nah, I'm not here. I'm not here for this. This is not a clean, not a beautiful podcast, but this how is insight on how I feel and how members of my family feel, members of my friend group feel. And to be honest, I just want you to know your silence is killing me. To my To my brothers and sisters in Christ that are happen to be Caucasian, your silence is killing me. I'm, I'm done. Uh, I don't have a beautiful ending to this, but I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. I want to thank God for giving me this opportunity to this stage. Thank you for your audience. This has been long enough. I did not expect to be an hour. But God bless you. God love you. I'm praying for everyone. I'm praying for the bystanders that have to deal with the trauma that they saw this. The people that actually saw the video that have to deal with the, the trauma that they saw this. To the people that were reignited because they they were almost Ahmaud Arbery. They were almost George Floyd. They could have been Breonna Taylor. They could have been. I'm praying for the families who did not catch their Amy Cooper on camera. And so they they were arrested and tried. I'm praying for those that lost someone. I'm praying. And I did this for you as much as I did it for me. For a while I've been quiet. on social media and I've been quiet amongst my friend groups I've, we've talked about it and I've been part of community conversations and round tables and I've been part of town hall meetings and I've been active there but I couldn't be quiet on this on this this social media thing because you need to hear my voice if you love me you'll say something God bless you, God love you, and remember, never let your independence rob you from your dependence on God. Until next time.